0: Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls of the ABA Journal. And today I'm joined by Sarah Fetterman, author of the book Transformative Negotiation Strategies for Everyday Change and Equitable Futures. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Can you tell my listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: Sure. So I actually had a business career first, then got transferred to Europe. Started to see the World War II in a very different way, and it called me kind of back to understanding conflict. How do you prevent war? How do you create peace? And that took me on a journey and then to a doctoral degree. And then I got my first teaching job at the University of Baltimore, which uh, is in the center of the city where they wanted me to teach negotiation. And very quickly, I saw that the negotiation that I had done around the world and that I had studied in the school could not be more different than the kinds of negotiations that my students were involved in. So that was what prompted the book. Now I'm at the University of San Diego at the Kroc School of Peace Studies. Uh, but the book very much brought the students with me because they helped me write it.
0: And one thing that really struck me when this book was pitched to me was that it's looking at... A different way of approaching negotiation studies like you said, you had been through a PhD process. there are people who have been working in this area you know of academia for quite some time and as human beings, we've been trying to figure this thing out for tens of thousands of years. but you felt that the negotiation field has some significant blind spots. Can you go into what some of those are?
1: Yeah, one of the things I noticed most immediately and it's really hard to miss when you're teaching predominantly professional black adults in Baltimore, a traditional negotiation, you know, pedagogy, right? The literature and the... Firstly, what stands out is just the context is so different. There's usually corporate examples, maybe hostage examples or international affairs. The kinds of examples that come in the book and role plays are about, you know, trying to get prunes from Pakistan or pandas from China, which are all real things and realities for some people, but my students didn't see themselves in the examples. Context-wise, they didn't even see their names in the examples. I mean, a lot of the books were using like the apostles. Everyone was named John or Paul, right? (laughs) Or Mary or Susan. And so both kind of the socioeconomic position, the social position, the context they were in. And what that meant is that the it turned out that the rules or how the world was operating where they were coming from wasn't really even acknowledged either. So it was like we tr- tried to make the best of the principles, which were still good, right? The principles are good, but the the context didn't transfer very well.
0: You say in the book you have four goals here, and I'm just going to read them out. You know who, what they are, but for the listeners, uh, first one is to help individuals move from precarity to stability, Second is to address the significant blind spots in the negotiation field. Third, to introduce a new approach to negotiation that disrupts rather than perpetuates oppression. And fourth, teach those with power how to use their power to create more equitable futures. And listeners out there, I know not all of you are lawyers, but many of you are. I think that everyone negotiates on a nearly daily basis over something, when you talk to your students about negotiation, navigating some uncomfortable situations, where do you find most people have a lot of blocks?
1: Yeah, especially so our students were often in government jobs or military or police or had were trying to negotiate with a the court system, carceral system, but just more rigid administrative structures than maybe the corporate many corporate environments. So what happens is many believe that all of those that there's just lots of no's and lots of rules and nothing feels really negotiable. So it's really extraordinary when somebody negotiates, it like convinces a judge to transform his life sentence, right? And, and and let him go after a number of years. Like how did you persuade a <laughs> judge to to do that? Um, but they're having to negotiate within very rigid structures for one, there's also for communities, people who are from either you call them historically marginalized or historically underestimated, or there can be a belief in not deserving. Uh, and so that can be also difficult for people to overcome. Learning to ask when they are unleashed to ask, I they, were, they could not believe how powerful they were, but many had learned silence or just kind of accepting their, their lot through these complicated systems.
0: I'd love to talk about the structure of the book. Can you share with listeners what your thinking process was when you laid out the chapters? One thing I particularly like is in every chapter, there is a list of exercises or activities to think more about this area that you are trying to help people uh, conceptualize. So, um, you know, let's, for instance, we can talk about asking, imagining giving. The the first three chapters are imagine, ask, give, and then you get into money, people's digital lives, power, gender, sex, and race, and then guns, addiction, and an orchestra. Uh, The Baltimore Baltimore Orchestra gets a shout out in this book. I would love to hear about your thought process in putting together the book and in selecting activities for people to complete at the end of the chapters.
1: One of the great gifts of writing this book, out of writing a class is that I had to, I kept teaching the class every semester. So I had to, you know, create it in 15 week structure. Like what would make sense? What kind of arc do you want to take people on? What's the journey? So I got to take the structure and take students through it and try out all those activities with the students to see what, what worked, what resonated with people. But I, it was the structure itself both resulted from the needs that they were bringing to me, and then holes that I saw in traditional negotiation approaches. For example, a lot of negotiation books tell you how to get what you want, but don't spend a lot of time helping you figure out why you want what you want or what actually do you want. And that's a huge area. I mean, what we want is so influenced, of course, by our culture, by advertising, and by our families, by our social context. And it's, but it's also, it's also influenced by historic marginality. What people want or think they can have is also affected by that. So I realized we have to start with that. And, you know, students start of themselves, like, why do I want this huge wedding? You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Why do you feel you have to have this helicopter bring you in? Or like, you know, why, where did that dream come from? And so we talked about things like that. Then, you know, if you can't ask for anything in your life, well, you sure as heck can't have anything. <laughs> so you have to learn to speak up. And then how do you do that in ways that, are, that work for the environment you're in? And then we know if people ask without giving, then they just get seen as takers. And that doesn't work well either. But what I learned in that context and where give is a little different than said in other negotiation books, it's not just about giving to other people, but people who are moving from precarity into stability from communities like that, they're often taking care of many people along the way, caring for kids, caring for parents, caring for siblings that haven't have had a hard time, people are in and out of the system. So there was a lot of needing to give to themselves, like giving more wasn't necessarily what they needed to do. They needed to figure out how to care for themselves as they were, you know, moving along in life and bringing many people with them.
0: I also loved the uh, in, part of the lists of um, advice for, you know, building a tribe and, and community to help you in your situation was be the nosy neighbor. <laughs> and I instantly was like, oh, yes, the nosy neighbors who have been in my life and who have, um, you know, you, you know, you can call them to be like, Joanne, uh, my pipes just burst. Who do I call? She will know. She will know. Be the nosy neighbor. So I loved that bit of advice.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's, even broader to, like, larger world conflict, I met uh, someone who had studied those who took great risks to save people during the Holocaust and during the Bosnian genocide. And he said what he found in common with the people is that they were the nosy neighbor, the one that you can't stand, that knows everything about you, is the one that will, like, run into the, like, figure out how to save your baby during a war. That there was some kind of correlation between that nosy person and actually, you know, there's a real strength in that. And they can sometimes, I think, get picked on for being so nosy, but they might be heroes if things change.
0: And you mentioned, you know, it's hard for people sometimes to trace back, oh, wait, why do I I want this? The chapters on imagine and ask, I really kept thinking about all of the family law attorneys who need to help their clients through a very painful process in which there are a lot of hurt feelings. There's a lot of fear about, you know, what economic precarity, you know, what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my children if I have them, and anger towards the other person. And it it just seems like this would be a good exercise, not just for lawyers themselves, but also to think about having their clients walk through. Is it so important to you to have, you know, the the stereo system that you are willing to have uncomfortable family events for the rest of your life with, yeah. with this person, and and getting getting clients to think through their asks seems like a really useful thing to do for you know not just family law, but that's the that's again what I just kept thinking about because you were really talking about people and their their kind of intimate everyday life problems that they need to solve, not just large corporate entities who might also do well to think, wait, why am I, why am I so wedded to this particular ask? So I, I think that that could be a very useful thing for lawyers to think about when they read this.
1: A few things, you know, there's, the stereo represents something, right? So helping people understand what does that represent for you? And it might be respect. It might be that I matter. If you could help them get to that, you know, and then how can you respect yourself? Or what would be respectful of yourself, of your future self, of your kid's future self, so that you acknowledge that symbol because it's, you know, they'll just say it's the stereo, right? But for them, they may not even realize what it's about. So futuring is very helpful, like in five years, you know, what will that mean? Kind of what you were saying, but also finding other ways to get that feeling of respect and self-respect.
0: There are other exercises in the book that I think are really great for people to think through. And I know that one of my areas of anxiety is, is around money. And, and you talk through that a lot in the chapter. Could you share with the listeners um, sort of what you talk about in the money chapter, some things that people may not be um, thinking about as negotiations or as helpful in negotiations. Would love to just hear you discuss that.
1: Yeah, I, I there's a lot of focus if you read negotiation books, you know, especially on salary, salary negotiations and how to negotiate for a house, you know, when you're looking at our lives or business contracts. But what I found was where people were most vulnerable and standing to lose the most in their lives, if you look at money, was things like not having insurance, right, not having a savings fund, which put them at great risk. You can't walk away from abusive situations as easily personally or professionally if you don't have any money but also not having a will in your family and families that don't have transgenerational wealth or any wealth in part because of how the how they've been positioned in society over over time I'm like if you if you want to protect your money like your $5,000 salary raise is one thing you know that's great but like your mom has a house <laughs> do you want you know want to talk to her about where that's going to go or you know if things get caught in probate so we had people come in fiduciaries come in and talk to the students about different financial basics because without those, one, you can be very, very vulnerable and you're chasing after the wrong thing. You think it's about the car. You think it's about the salary raise, but it's really about this real solid financial foundation. The other was most negotiation books don't talk or think about how do you know how much you can afford? It just tries to help you you know, spend less or get more but, but what is your walkaway point? How do you get to that? So we, there really was some big gaps for people around really finance 101, which I think probably a lot of people have, even if they have big salaries. Like It doesn't mean you know those basics. So that's sort of what we discovered in doing that.
0: There's also a discussion about student debt, which many of my listeners yeah. certainly have. And uh, thank you for the shout out to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness yes. program that's been just transformational transformational um, and and glad to see word being spread about it.
1: Yeah, Ginger Robertson was a law professor in my class. I was really lucky to have her, and she was advising the other students going to law school how to use that and how to – she got $90,000 worth of debt wiped away using it.
0: It, it truly has been life-changing. Um, I work for the American Bar Association, and um, people who work for the American Bar Association in general uh, may qualify for – this program and there's there's it's just been an incredible Mm. thing for people to know about so love like i said love the word getting passed around about that we're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers when we return uh i'm going to ask about another exercise you have called the inbox colonic
1: (laughs) delegate out those tasks that take up your time staffy can help you with your legal administrative marketing and even client-facing workload Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I.cc, and get five hundred dollars off with code Happy twenty-four. Filing court documents, serving legal papers. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotraccom simple.
0: Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm still here with Sarah Fetterman, author of the book Transformative Negotiation. Now, before the ad break, I mentioned the inbox colonic. This is a very memorable phrase. Can you please tell uh, our listeners a little bit about what this is and why you encourage people to do it?
1: Yeah. So I I take students through a week or so on digital, like just negotiating so much online through text and so on, and email, and they would have like 16,000 or 60,000 messages in their inbox. And I say, I challenge them to get their inbox down to 100 or to at least delete fifteen to 20,000 messages, whichever one they would like to do. And I chat, say to them, I bet you have things in there. I bet you have money. I bet, you know, you don't know what you're going to find, but part of negotiating well is staying in the conversation. And if you don't read your email, you lose the conversation. So that was the colonic. Those who understand what colonics are, it's ways to clean out your bowels. <laughs> so I have them clean out their inboxes. And we had a student who found a job offer in there, and he went back and he called them and he got the job. Students often found money. I mean, almost all of them would say like, oh, I actually did find some money in there, whether it was like a coupon or something they didn't return or something, And one had realized that she spent a few years being mad at a friend for not inviting her to a bridal shower, realizing that she had actually just missed the invite in her email.
0: Oh, no. So
1: I know. (laughs) So it's about money, but it's also about your relationships and, and being in touch. And, you know, email can be such a crazy place, but they unsubscribed from a lot of different things they weren't using and kind of cleaning up their lives, too, and finding that a lot of solutions were right in their inbox. It's such a great feeling to have so much less in there. But I I just did this this past weekend, and I found all kinds of things uh, in people that were waiting on me. Right, because part of what makes our personal and professional lives work is that there's communication and trust in our relationships. So then communication flows, things move forward. But if people make so much meaning when they don't hear back, I'll say we make so much meaning when we don't hear back, and. People can feel that you don't care about them, you don't value the project, or whatever meaning they make. So that's why it's important not to be obsessively responding every second, but to make sure we say, you know, sorry about that, Like this is important to me, and we just reiterate to people that we're we're still in the conversation, or if we've missed it, that we hope it went well, whatever it was.
0: Another exercise you encourage, but I think would really work for especially small firms or maybe practice groups within firms... It can be really hard to keep up with how everyone's doing in a group, even though we feel like, well, I talk to you every day or I message you every day. Um, I'm, I must know what's going on with you. But it's easy to lose track of what else is happening in people's lives and then to not understand what your ask of them really is asking of them. Mm. Um, so I loved this Uh, check-in group, which you call the Selena method, which is also (laughs) in the digital uh, chapter. Could you talk about the Selena method?
1: Yeah. So Selena was a student who uh, I got a grant to pay some students to edit my chapters and see if they could think of better ideas to replace my ideas with their ideas. And Selena shared this. uh, She had a little group with, I think was with her friends first, maybe. Oh, no, she did it first with, it was a group of recovering rape survivors I believe and creating a little chat group um, with them to do daily check-ins and we find daily check-ins are so great for people's mental health and even therapists are starting to figure this out and starting to create chat groups for people but you know you can do different things with it you can do like something that you're grateful for how you're feeling something you're grateful for or something you're looking forward to right or you can do something you're grateful for it's something you're upset about and you know you can do different questions but what she and her friends did was just pick three things to go through. And every day have people check in on those three. And that created a kind of momentum and didn't create kind of a false positive attitude where you have to be grateful every moment. But you got to say something good, something a little difficult, you know, and then maybe something you're working on. But those kinds of those you can start easily and see if they take with your colleagues or your or your friends.
0: We've talked about individuals and what you can do in your individual life. We've talked about small groups let's start talking about systemic issues when it comes to negotiations i hear and see so many firms want to have a diverse workforce and i know that for some people this is just lip service but for many people many businesses they, I do genuinely feel, want to do this. They want to make sure that they're bringing in people from a broad range of backgrounds because that's how you get a lot of innovations in your solutions. But much like what you said with the field of negotiation, uh, there is an understanding of, well, here's what a traditional workspace is or and this is, this is how we speak to each other. This is how we negotiate. This is how we behave in a workplace without realizing that those norms were developed by people in power uh, and that many of the best known pieces of advice may genuinely not work for marginalized people. So firms may be very proud of the diversity that they're hiring. But then struggle to retain workers and build healthy, firm environments. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this because I do think it's genuinely in the legal industry just a huge issue that I believe legal professionals want to solve.
1: Yeah. And and I'm gonna be giving you, and what I put in the book is what the students told me about their experiences, because they were the ones trying to navigate, you know, being a black paralegal and an all-white male law office and kind of what that was like and sort of the patterns we get into. So some of the things, you said this very well before, because it's what is professional behavior and who decides, and oh my gosh, the amount of pressure on black women around hair and how complicated that is for them and how much money they're spending trying to like match or deal with all these expectations about what professional is. So one thing to think about when we're we're bringing diverse workforces Thinking about, okay, you bringing in people from different backgrounds, different ethnic and as well as socioeconomic, but then giving the space for different forms of expression as well, right? So one is just bringing one of everybody to the table. And so, okay, we've got one of each, check the box. And the other is, all right, well, I learned that people who grew up in precarity and moved to stability actually have a lot of skills I don't have. <laughs> right? And yeah, their form of expression might be different, but their ability to detect bullshit was actually a lot better too, right? So they had different skills. So that that was one. One of the interesting studies that I mentioned in the book is that, you know, happy hours and things that, that companies do to try to bring people together very admirably, and law firms may do, they can actually increase distance between colleagues. And this was sort of counterintuitive, but they found, for example... If, you're, if most of your colleagues are white and they're watching Downton Abbey, right, and you're coming into this conversation and they're talking about their television show and you're like, okay, I don't watch that, right? I'm watching a totally different show, like Dear White People or something, right? And, and you're saying, well, I, if I bring that up, then I'm the black person. I'm the stereotypical black person and I don't quite fit in that. So what the advice was is to create those opportunities for people to connect, but not forcing people. People to connect and not forcing them to share personal information that they know that even by speaking about their lives, it actually shows the distance. I don't know if you've ever had this with a colleague and you like realize the gap between your socioeconomic situations, right? And you're like, and the, and the person maybe who's way richer is like, wow, I'm just like, so, I have so much more wealth than you. This is awkward. It's certainly,
0: yeah. Socioeconomic or, uh, you know, finding out how far apart someone you really click with at work. Uh, your experiences are out of work. I, I do, now that you're bringing it up, I can see how that could feel like, oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought we knew each other better or I thought that we were more in tune and we're spending our off time differently. And if you don't kind of reframe the way you think about that, that could lead to yeah. more, more distance, distance rather than realizing, yeah. wait, we get along great. We yeah. get along great. We can spend our, <laughs> our downtime doing different things. And um, achieve what we want to uh, together in the workplace, but those those moments of alienation, so lonely.
1: Yeah, it can make so it's ironic. Like, oh, it can make it worse to bring people together, or just giving people the. This doesn't mean to tiptoe around everything, but just giving people the space to share what they want to share, and don't take not sharing as being aloof. And I think that was some of the miss calculation as well, uh, is actually understanding that distance or quietness as people making themselves separate, but just accept them as they are.
0: I think that there's also a generational element, perhaps, as as well as, um, you know, people talk about, well, what's no longer appropriate in the workplace, et cetera. One thing I thought about while reading the book is who gets to yell? (laughs) I have never in my life yelled at work, Not once. I get really freaked out by people yelling at me. There are plenty of old partners in a law firm or certainly, you know, younger, younger folks in a law firm who yelling is something that they feel fine about, yell at a subordinate, et cetera. And there are people who socially have been shown through experience that if they raise their voice, uh, they will be in big trouble. Big trouble. So that's just one of the things I think about when it comes to like negotiations. You mentioned when you have been in these corporate negotiations, you've seen you know white men break down and cry, and and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with showing emotions um, and having tears, but there also is the question of who can display emotions without having that rebound in a negative way on them professionally.
1: Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting chapter to write and, and to explore and to think through my own life as well as read the research and talk to other people. One was that students were like, well, how, how do you understand power? Especially when you start to read like Foucault or Bourdieu, like, ah, power is so complicated and all these models of power. And I was like, well, just who can scream? <laughs> <laughs> who can have like what you consider a tantrum and get away with it, right? Uh, except for children, right? So you might not say they have all the power <laughs> with that, but may- maybe they do, you know, maybe that's actually the trick. So that was sort of who can express what emotions. Then the more subtle that you got into is who can who can cry. And so there was a lot written on white women tears and black women saying like, well, the white woman cries in the office and everybody's like gathering to her and like, but if I cried, oh my God, are you kidding me? I'd be seen, you know as overly emotional and so on. That's sort of interesting who's allowed to express what. And I do think men sometimes get trapped in that too. I mean, it's not, they can't express certain emotions either. So just looking at that to start a map, the power dynamics and some of the social expectations for how we're supposed to behave.
0: We're going to take another quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, we will be talking about how to negotiate your pay. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I am here with Sarah Fetterman, and we' are about to talk about I think one of the top things people think about when they think about negotiation and that is negotiating your pay. One thing I thought was really interesting um, was advice you had specifically for um, women or you know people who are not cisgendered men. <laughs> And it's about using we language.
1: Yeah. So some of the research has been very interesting about women in in negotiation. In class one night, one woman was having trouble negotiating her salary. And this very supportive young man was like, well, why don't you just like speak up more and ask for it? And she's like, like, no, you don't understand. But the research shows that actually, yeah, women are penalized more when they speak up to negotiate not by other women as well, by the way. I don't want to position this as just uh, it's men doing it to women. Women also, also do it to women. And when women tend to fare a little better when they use we language, like, for example, you know, I'd like this salary because that'll help me really invest further in this institution and focus on, you know, this promotion will help me, you know, get more respect from the team so that I'm able to spearhead more effectively the projects that I'm already working on and so on. That you need to sort of show what the, promotion, uh, or the raise sort of will make possible within the organization, not your personal, not like how, like, well, allow me to have childcare so I can be here on time. It's not that kind of thing, but to use we, whereas in the studies that were done when men just asked for it, it was just sort of, oh yeah, you just want a raise because a raise makes sense. But women had to do sort of more work around that. And women might intuitively be feeling that, right? Which is why I, I think maybe women listening to this might be like, oh yeah, like that's what I do. <laughs> You know, it's like, because, yeah, you've picked up on signals that you don't want to be penalized for being the one who wants to be promoted.
0: Is there anything that you want listeners to reframe their thinking about when it comes to negotiating salaries?
1: One, know that you can do it. You can be super excited that you got the job and then separate that from negotiating your salary. Like, I can't believe I got it. Like, I almost couldn't pay my rent. This is what happened to some of the students. And they would just take the job being so grateful, which is great that they're grateful and great that they're excited, uh, but to take a pause. And then it's like a different mode. It's like, like Keisha Matthews, who was the head of career services at University of Baltimore, said, like, you're changing, almost like changing gears. One is you're selling yourself. But then once you get the offer, you're in a now you're in a different conversation. So they want you to have the job. That's why they've offered it to you they expect you to negotiate and so then shift into that mode and then you know in the chapter I sort of talk about how you might want to do that you know you want to make sure that at least what you're asking for was in the within the range of your field and also that you're talking about the professional work not that you need the money for your own you know for your own personal things like she's like you know, keep outside your personal life yeah but make sure that you switch modes be excited jump around and then get you know then get thinking about how you're going to talk about the salary negotiation and it adds up over time you do want to take the time to do it and that it feeling uncomfortable doesn't mean that something's wrong
0: that is a great thing to say you know feeling uncomfortable doesn't mean something's wrong having anxiety doesn't mean you have to stop those are very good things yes. to yes. to stress to switch gears we've talked about in the business world, in our personal lives, in nonviolent situations, how to negotiate. But obviously, in the real world, for many people, violence is part of their daily life. It is part of their calculation. And as a profession, I think it's safe to state that the people in the negotiation field want there to be less of it. But the ways we think about violence and how to stop violence, interrupt violence, I don't think that I feel like I have the answers. And you had some interesting things to say about de and how people can intervene in situations or take the temperature down in violent situations. And I would just love for you to talk about researching this chapter, things that you learned, and about how we can deal with violence in our communities.
1: Sure. Yeah. So in Baltimore, this is very real and something anybody who lives there is is thinking about. But because I didn't grew up in a, living in an environment like that, I brought in Lenny Spain and others who work with something called Safe Streets in Baltimore, which takes firma, formerly street-involved people and trains them to be actually violence interrupters on on the street during and to prevent violent altercations. It's a very dangerous job. Some of them get shot. You know, a number of the, the leaders have actually died doing this work. But Lenny Spain had done his master's degree and articulating what it is that you need to know. And what he talked about is that the first thing, when, it, when a gun's in the room, right, it's no longer sort of a negotiation. Now you're in a very different dynamic. But even just when there's violence, that's not the time when people are going to be negotiating. Do not try to solve problems when people are in that heightened state. You can see it in their eyes, right, and their breathing and how they're thinking. They actually don't have access you know, to that part of their brain that can think through and plan ahead. There's no future thinking when you're in fight mode. So first thing is you need to get people separate, right? You have to interrupt the storyline because the storyline is you offend me, I shoot you, right? And there's some great techniques. I mean, this violence interrupters would do anything like you know, take the kids to dinner, you know, take a kid to dinner who was about to shoot someone and then talk it out. And then once they got a break, they'd even go like smoke some pot with them just to like, just to do anything to interrupt at the moment. So you can do it, you can do it that way. There's even some examples in there from some police in Cincinnati who worked on how to deescalate violence, domestic violence calls. And they use something called NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming, and they would interrupt the storyline. So what they would do is instead of just banging on the door and saying, you know, what's going on here, they would do funny taps on the door and then say something like, well, since you called and we arrived, what solutions have you thought of? And if the people had no solutions, they would sit down and watch TV. You know, and they would just disrupt the storyline. And there's another book called Sweet Fruit from the Bitter Tree, which has tons of little stories about how people interrupt those storylines and actually prevent themselves from getting raped, prevent themselves from getting killed, but how to actually flip that moment. But part of it is just don't play into that moment, interrupt it. If you think of it like a play and the scene is going, you want to stop that scene and change it. So there's a number of ways to do that. But one, just don't try to solve the problem when people are angry.
0: And I think that that's really good advice for lawyers dealing with clients. If you f- see your client becoming completely overwhelmed, and you have any ability to remove them from the thing that's overwhelming them, yeah, do it. Yes, do it. Get them out of the room. Take a break, etc. A cup of
1: tea. And the ante- the feeling is the feeling is so big. If I solve it, the feeling will go away. But now the feeling is doing something else. It's got its own momentum. So you got to get people back into themselves.
0: One thing you come back to again and again in the book is the idea of not just a win-win situation or negotiation or outcome, but a win-win-win. And I would love for you to talk to listeners about the difference between a win-win
1: and a win-win-win. Yeah. Well, the first part aim of negotiation was to get people out of this win-lose mindset. For me to succeed, you have to suffer. And that's already huge. And then to think about, oh, we can both win from here, that great negotiators leave both parties satisfied and truly satisfied, not just bamboozled, right? You actually, you do the work, you get creative, you stay with it until you're both like, yes. And then everything goes well and then the relationship is stronger and you may have other other opportunities. That's wonderful. What I found was the limitation with that is that, you and I could be very happy. We could have a negotiation right now, but we may harm all the people in our organization, right? There's no actual ethical catch in a win-win to see how it affects other people. So just a very brief, concrete example. There is a community in Baltimore called Poppleton. The developing the organization that was the developer made an agreement with the city about transforming that area into another kind of space, not talking to the people about how they felt about having their houses be taken from them by imminent domain. So of course they were very unhappy, right? So it was not a, it was a win-win between the developer and the city and they're high-fiving and saying, woohoo, we got this great deal, but they didn't talk to the people whose homes were going to be taken. So it wasn't a win-win-win. So what that means is when you're doing it, making an agreement is just checking and even quickly, it doesn't take a lot of time, who else is affected by this decision and will they think this is a good deal? And then if you take it a step further, which is the John Rawls justice approach, think of yourself waking up tomorrow morning as being the person who's worse off, the worst off by this deal. And do you think it's still a good deal? And that's a way to add an ethical frame to the quick decision making. You know, does this agreement work for the kids, right? Does it work for, you know, maybe the spouse who's not at the negotiating table or so on?
0: And I did drop a hint that there was an orchestra involved in this book (laughs) or a story about an orchestra. I don't want to leave people hanging. So how did an orchestra dispute find its way into your book about negotiation?
1: Well, when I would come out of my negotiation class or come out of my office, they were picketing protesters in front of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. So that was hard to ignore. So there was a A big kerfuffle with the orchestra. They got locked out. And then there was a big salary dispute and conflicts with the donors, conflict with the board, and so on. And so I called some of them to figure out what was going on over there and how do you save and how do you keep a world class orchestra going in a city that has so many challenges, so much poverty, so much underemployment, you know, so much violence. And then you have this world-class orchestra right in the middle of it. So it was sort of a contrast to say, you know, how does this work? Like, how do you, but then also how do you keep cultural institutions going and those kinds of organizations so that it had at least one organizational conflict in there. And boy, did I learn quite a bit about how they made that happen. And to their credit, I mean, they they went through COVID. They were fine during COVID, they told me, because of the hard work they did negotiating before. But one of the challenges they had is that what the orchestra members were saying to the board was not audible to the board because it was coming from they, <laughs> the help is how the orchestra members called themselves, right? Actually, and they had to bring in outsiders who could communicate what they were saying. Because for some reason, those who were on the board were not musicians. You know, they were people who were very successful in business and didn't quite understand what the orchestra was saying, couldn't hear it. So they had to find somebody else, actually, of their class who understood it and could say it. Um, And that was one of the many things. But one other piece I want to say that, first, because this is a law audience, is that at first, the musicians had a lawyer that was really taking a contentious approach to to the to the whole conflict, and that worked in the beginning, but then they needed to switch to someone who took a more collaborative approach. And that sometimes needing to change st- strategies, that what works at one moment in the conflict may not work as a, as a conflict style in a latter part.
0: That is always a good reminder. Uh, assess your strategy and just because something worked at the beginning of yeah. a negotiation doesn't mean that that's how this will all get settled. Well, Sarah, if there are people out there listening who want to find out more about your work or get in touch with you or pick up the book, Transformative Negotiation, where can they do that?
1: Yeah. So it's available anywhere, uh, anywhere, I would say anywhere books are sold, but that's not true. But it's definitely <laughs> anywhere online that books are sold. Uh, and hopefully in in bookstores and airports and all that as well. Uh, and then my website's very simple. It's just sarahfetterman.com. So you can read about, you know, the book there, my other books, other articles. But you can also let me know right there, if you try one of these activities, what actually happens. I'm very excited to see what people say.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you have a book you'd like me to check out for a future interview, you can always reach out to me at books at abajournal.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.